2: this is the italian american podcast the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian-Americans learn about their heritage. We do that by speaking to Italian-Americans in all different age ranges, professions, and locations. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri. And in this special Christmas episode, we're going to talk with Marianne Esposito about her career as a TV chef, 26 years on TV teaching people how to cook both the Italian and the Italian-American way. Dolores, how are you doing today? Hi, Anthony.
1: Merry Christmas.
2: Yeah, Merry Christmas to you.
1: And Merry Christmas to everyone listening. This show will be airing on Christmas Eve. So if you're listening to it with your family on Christmas Eve, you know that makes us very happy. But uh, if you're listening to it a little bit later, we hope you had a terrific Christmas with your family and a nice big Italian-American Christmas Eve because... For Italians, Christmas Eve is the real Christmas.
2: It is. And and if you you are listening to this on Christmas Eve, you're most likely in the kitchen working on some kind of a seafood dish.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that image. It makes (laughs) me happy.
2: Yeah, definitely. And we did get into that a little bit with Marianne. I think the great thing about talking with Marianne, and this is something that came up a little bit in the last episode, the recipe episode as well, is just the meaning, the deeper meaning of food for Italian-Americans, which is really the traditions and the family that it helps you bring together.
1: Absolutely. And a lot of the chefs and cooks that we've had on the show pointed to that. And I think as Italian-Americans, we know that very well. You know, it's the food we love to eat. But, you know, why do we love to eat? Because it brings us together. And that's really the important part of this amazing food is it's the magnet.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And even when we talk with Marianne, she reinforced some of the same things, like Dolores said, things have been said in the past by Lydia, Bastianich and other people that have been on the podcast. But even if you go to an Italian-American family's house, whether it's on Sunday or on a holiday, and you look at the dishes that they're preparing, just those dishes alone can tell you maybe the region that they came from. The food can tell you so much about a family and has such a part of the fabric of it. Which, Absolutely, Which again came out in this episode. So it's always good to be reminded of that. I think that that's one of the powerful things about our culture.
1: Right, like the food says something.
2: Yeah, it's, exactly.
1: The food you're eating points to something about you and your family and your family's history. As you'll hear, Marianne mentions risotto and... I didn't even know about risotto until I was way older, and actually one of our very close family friends who grew up in northern Italy came over one night and cooked it for us. Because where my family's from, risotto's not a dish, it's not a thing, but everything else Marianne mentions about the area near Naples, that's what I grew up eating
2: no definitely and it's like people might say oh you're italian you eat like you know spaghetti and meatballs and pizza but we know that if you go like i said if you go to someone's house and you look at their sauce the kind of meat that's in it is going to be different maybe every italian american household The maybe the kind of pasta and again it all goes back to these different family traditions and it's great because it's just it allows you to have your own traditions within the culture which i think is what makes the italian culture so interesting because there is so many different avenues and different foods and languages, right? That's the cool thing about it. Also, at the end of the episode, we're going to have a special Christmas Stories segment. So before we introduce our guest, I'd like to recognize our sponsors for this episode. First, we'd like to recognize the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American Podcast. At NIAF, we know there's nothing more important than family, and we invite you to be a part of ours. We work hard to protect our great heritage, to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, we provide young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find
3: out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org
2: and become a part of the NIAF family. We also have another sponsor for this episode, Mediaset Italia, which is now on DirecTV from AT&T. When your heart is in Italy but you are here, bring a piece of Italy home. Introducing Mediaset Italia from DirecTV. It's perfect for anyone who loves all things Italia. Enjoy all your favorite Italian programs from channels Canale 5, Italia 1, and Rete 4 on Mediaset Italia. And best of all, you get your favorite entertainment, including shows like Caduta Libera, Mattino Cinque, and Squadra Anti-Mafia. Feel like you're home again with Mediaset Italia on DirecTV from AT&T. Introducing Mediaset Italia from DirecTV. Get Mediaset Italia for $10 a month plus taxes. Call 877-778-4794 to get Mediaset Italia from DirecTV. That's 877 778 four seven nine four media set Italia requires activation of a qualifying base package hardware available separately at additional cost programming is subject to change at any time other fees restrictions and conditions apply call for details and I will say that programming like this can help you tremendously improve your Italian language and it's something that's been very helpful for me and I hope you're taking advantage of that and all the resources like this out there all right so now I'd like to introduce our guest for the main segment of today's episode. As the creator and host of the nationally televised PBS series Chow Italia with Marianne Esposito, Marianne has brought her Italian American values to millions of Americans. This year, the series celebrates its milestone 26th season, making it the longest running cooking series in television history. Through Chow Italia and appearances on other television programs including The Today Show, Regis and Kelly, QVC, The Food Network, Discovery Channel, Fox, Martha Stewart Radio, Ride. International, The Victory Garden, Simply Ming, and so many others, she's been able to share traditional Italian cooking with audiences around the world. Marianne is the author of 12 cookbooks, her most recent Chow Italia family classics. In addition, she also hosts an annual trip to Italy for students to experience hands-on cooking classes. You can find everything out about her at Ciao Italia. Alright, now I'm gonna kick it back over to Dolores to give us a quote to bring us in to our conversation with Marianne.
1: Okay, Anthony, this quote is from Julia Child. People who love to eat are always the best people.
0: Chill alone
2: Before we jump into the interview, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for today's interview, ItalyLegalOnline.com. ItalyLegalOnline.com provides online legal advice for Italian-Americans with legal matters in Italy, such as sale of home or land, estate, probate, pension, injury, immigration, and more. Some of the benefits of working with ItalyLegalOnline.com include their professionalism. They employ quality attorneys with expertise in all aspects of the Italian law. Privacy, they utilize a secure website with attorneys sworn to keep your privacy paramount. Convenience, their attorneys are at your service. There's no need to spend time searching for a specialized law firm or attorney in Italy. Affordability, traditional legal consultation can cost hundreds of dollars or more per hour. Italy Legal Online saves you time and money. You can receive expert legal advice in three easy steps. Visit www.italylegalonline.com and set up your free account. Submit your legal question. Receive a response in 24 hours. You may submit your legal query in English or Italian and receive your answer in the language you prefer. Visit www.italylegalonline.com or call 212-279-9040. Again, that's www.italylegalonline.com or call 212 And now we are thrilled to welcome Marianne Esposito from Ciao Italia onto the Italian American podcast. Marianne, welcome.
3: Thank you. Ciao. How are you?
2: We're doing well. It's, it's the holiday season, as you know. It's a busy time for Italian-Americans, for sure. And uh, we're thrilled that you could spend a few minutes with us here. And we usually start out by asking our guests to talk a little bit about their childhood growing up Italian-American.
3: Well, that would be very easy to talk about, uh, because I grew up in an Italian-American home with two Southern Italian grandmothers who were cooks, actually. They were professional cooks. My uh, Sicilian grandmother, who came from Caltanissetta right in the center of Sicily, was a butcher by profession. I learned a lot from her about how to singe chicken feathers. Wow. <laughs> you know, all the, all the, yeah, right. I learned a lot about her methods of cooking, which to this day, I cannot duplicate what this woman did. She was just amazing. And I spent a lot of time with her because I would spend my summer vacations in Fairport, New York, where she lived. She would be cooking up a storm all the time. And then my Neapolitan grandmother ran a boarding house and she was the chief cook. So I learned a lot about Neapolitan cooking from her. And then later on, my mother went to school after having seven children to become a dietitian. So you could say that I was surrounded by food all the time. You know, there was always food activity going on and, and I mean in large quantities. When we made bread we made twelve loaves of bread. When we made pasta we made pounds and pounds of pasta. When we made cookies for Christmas, they were by the bushel full. So everything was always in large volume.
1: sounds so wonderful, (laughs) that whole story. I mean, what a rich, vibrant way to grow up. Yeah, for sure. Although
3: in my first cookbook, Chow Italia, I did say that if someone had looked into a crystal ball and told me that I would be doing a cooking show, I would have choked on two meatballs because having grown up in a family like that where cooking was constant, that was the last thing I wanted to do. But... As they say, the prunes don't fall far from the tree. So there I was.
2: I'm sure many of you know, as we said earlier in the introduction, that Mary Ann's the creator and the host of the nationally televised PBS series Ciao Italia with marian esposito and what i wanted to talk to you about marian was exactly what you just said you know you grew up in a family where there was a lot of cooking a lot of food dolores and i are familiar with that for sure and then you ended up getting on tv and to me that seems like that's a big leap watching your show you seem so comfortable i'm sure it's because you've done it for a long time now but how did that happen i mean how did you get so into it that you decided to go into that realm
3: Well, it happened actually when I made my very first trip to Italy, and that was way back in 1991. I decided that I wanted to hone my home skills on cooking by going to a cooking school. So I signed up for a course in Sorrento, actually. And when I arrived there, I was kind of blown away and bored because everything the chef was teaching, I already knew because my grandmothers and my mother had, had taught me all of this stuff already. So, you know, I wanted something more, even though the cooking part of it was disappointing because when I was watching the chef who was half Austrian and half Italian make lasagna sheets, I would say to myself, those sheets of lasagna are much too thick. You've got to be able to see your hand underneath a sheet of lasagna. That's when you <laughs> know that you've got the, the right thickness. And he was making them much too thick. So I was very, very critical. But then I started thinking, I know all this because of these three women who actually... I dedicated my last cookbook to Chao Italia Family Classics, to those three women. But while I was in Italy, what did strike me was everything that my grandmothers had told me about the old country was true. The people were beautiful, the food was vibrant, the culture was magnificent, the music was fantastic. There wasn't anything about Italy in that first trip that I didn't love. And it just, something in me said, you need to do more. Maybe you could teach Americans about Italian regional food, because we all know that there is no such thing as Italian food. There's only regional food. So I came back, And it was actually my husband who prodded me. He said, you know what? Do you want to write up a proposal and bring it over to your local public television station? Luckily, I lived in a college town where there was a public TV station. And so I brought it to them. And I said, this is what I would love to do. You know, there's a backstory to this, though, because when I was not in Italy, I had my own catering business. So I I had this background in food. Anyway they told me no. They said, no, we can't do this. We don't have a studio. We don't a that's large enough for a kitchen, blah, blah, blah. For every which reason it was no. And so I just let that idea go by the wayside. And then a couple of years later, when they moved into a new studio, they called me and they had kept my proposal and they asked me if I would do a pilot program for them. And I agreed. I had no experience in TV whatsoever, but I did a pilot program in my home. And I remember that 26 minute program took all day to film so that by the end of the day, I was really exhausted. And I thought to myself, I don't really know if I want to do this. This is just too grinding. It's too mental. It's too physical, all of the the above. But they sent it out to be aired. And I think I was probably in the right place at the right time because this is 1990, 1991. You're hearing an awful lot Out there in the news about olive oil and the merits of the Mediterranean diet and the and the Italian diet, and so I think those things helped to propel the interest in an Italian cooking show. And so that's how Chow Italia was born in a little town in Durham, New Hampshire. And from there, it went national. And so now here we are. We've just completed our twenty eighth year on public television, making making Chow Italia the longest running cooking show in America. Actually.
1: So that's
3: a little history of it in a nutshell.
1: Okay, so I'm going to rewind far back and take us a little bit back to when you were talking about your first trip to Italy. So one question I have is, were your nonas still alive when you took that trip?
3: No, they were not. They had passed away.
1: And the reason I asked that is because you said, you know, if somebody would have told me that I would have started cooking, et cetera, you know, would have choked on meatballs is because I wonder sometimes or actually I, I kind of actually think this is like a truth that we don't do those things when we're younger because there is still a generation before us doing them and why would you go ahead and try to cook meatballs and sauce and all of this stuff when you have these incredible Italian cooks doing it for you? But then when they're no longer here, we find that it becomes our turn. I wonder if that was a little bit of your impulse.
3: Well, I think you hit the nail right on the head because that is what I said in my introduction to my last cookbook. I I felt an innate prodding to keep the traditions alive that these women had kept for me. So I am the next generation to carry on what they started. You know, it was very important to me. And, you know, 28 years later, I'm still learning an awful lot about Italian regional food.
1: I'm sure it's inexhaustible.
2: <laughs> I'm sure it is, for sure. And that, and that's something that Marianne does really well. If you watch her show, she does really look at the different regions of Italy because, like she said, things are regional. I mean, Dolores and I know quite a bit about that from doing the podcast and interviewing people and knowing that most of Italian-Americans, of course, come from southern Italy. Their families came from southern Italy. That's important because I think people that aren't Italian-American or that aren't very versed in that just say, you know, Italian food is Italian. Italian food. But it's really not that straightforward.
3: No, not at all. And that's why I often get that question. You know, you've been on the air for 28 years. What else is there to say about Italian food? Well, let me tell you, we've just cracked the surface because regional food is just that. You've got 20 regions of Italy. And within those 20 regions, you have little pockets that have maintained their specific way of cooking. This is the uniqueness of what we call Italian food, because I'll give you a perfect example. One year when I was in Sicily at Regaliali, which is a very famous wine estate, and it was close to where my grandfather grew up near Santa Caterina Villarmosa, and I was making a journey with his passport to his hometown for the first time. So I'm in Regaliali, and the woman at the estate said to me, I would love to take you to the little town next door, Vallelunga, to meet the uh, pasta maker. I said, fine. Fine. All right. So we get in the car, we go five miles away from Regali five miles away. We arrive, we go into the Passificho, and she introduces me to this gentleman. And he starts to talk, of course, in Sicilian dialect, which I have a hard time understanding. He's going on and on. I'm getting little gists of it. So I finally I turned to Anna and I said, Anna, what did he say? And she looked at me and said, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. And this just brought home to me how insular things are in certain parts of Italy. So she's five miles away. She couldn't relate to this man. So imagine how that impacted the traditional foods of certain local areas where they just kept to themselves and they kept those traditions alive. And you can find these pockets today, mostly in rural areas. I mean, you know, now when you go to Florence, you go to Milano, you go even to Sicily, you have foods that have kind of Transcended one another. You don't just eat risotto in Milan anymore. You can eat it in Sicily. You can eat it anywhere in Italy. But at one time, you would probably just eat it in the north. You know what I'm saying? Now it's on menus everywhere in Italy. But maybe you've never had cappellini in Pulgatorio. So, you know, this is a little pasta dish that was served to babies, a way to get protein into them with mixing eggs into tomato sauce. Now, that's a very localized thing. You don't see that very often. It's not so generic like a lasagna would be. So no matter where you go in Italy, and I've been traveling in Italy now since 1991, and I just came back with a group that I took to cooking school in Palermo in the south western part of uh, Sicily. And you would be surprised how localized the foods are, that there are things that people here don't even have never heard of. Like the Feast of the Seven Fishes, the Feast of the Seven Fishes is has nothing to do with Italy. It has everything to do with italian Americans i can 't tell you how many friends how many friends I have asked in Italy, how do you do the Feast of the Seven Fishes? what they have no idea what i 'm talking about. When you think about it, well, how did this get here then? Well, you say to yourself, it got here because a lot of Sicilians, they were the largest group that came they many of them settled. In New Orleans, because they could mend nets, they could work on ships. These were the things that they were used to. They were fishermen. Because Christmas Eve was a fast day then, the La Vigilia, they could not eat meat. Correct. But you know how Italians are. When you cook a meal, you don't cook one thing. It's not here. There's a here's a piece of meat and a salad. It's abondanza. So we have the Vigilia. <laughs> So what are we what are we doing? We're doing several dishes, and since it's meatless, we have to do fish. So that's where that idea started. So you have the feast of the seven fishes. You've got the feast of the twelve fishes, and then you have all the explanations as to why is this feast day called the feast of the seven fishes? Oh, it's because of the seven sacraments. No, it's because God created the world in seven days. It's the twelve fishes because of the twelve apostles. So there you go. So these little folk tales get started. And they have been brought in here by immigrants who have come to settle as Italian-Americans.
1: I know Italian-American cooking is really like an entirely different subject. That's for sure one thing, right? When people are are thinking about Italian food or actually when non-Italian-Americans think of Italian food, it's not what we eat when we go to the pizzeria. You know, it's it's really not the heavy sauce, the heavy cheese and all that. Italian cooking is very different than the Italian-American cooking.
3: Exactly. It's very different. Very different.
1: For instance,
3: I remember taking a group to Naples and I wanted them to enjoy pizza the way it should be because that's the home of pizza, right? I took them to a pizzeria and I suggested that they have the classic pizza margarita, which is one of the pizzas that you would order in Naples. I mean, there there are others, but this is the classic. So pizza margarita, as we all know, is tomato and basil and buffalo mozzarella to be a true pizza uh, Margarita. And those are the colors of the Italian flag. So used because, according to stories, Raphael Esposito, no relation to me, was a pizzaiolo. And he knew that Queen Margarita was coming to visit Naples. And so he wanted to do something in her honor. And so he made a pizza that had the colors of the Italian flag. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. But these are the stories that surround a lot of these recipes. Anyway, getting back to the pizza. We're in the pizzeria. Everyone is seated. And I said, look, in Italy, you have a personal pizza. You don't share it. It's your pizza. You're not going to sh- cut it up into triangles and serve it to somebody else. It comes to you on a plate, dinner-sized plate, about 10 inches. And this is the way you should eat it. Well, when it arrived, I heard more complaints than I could put oh, in a no. notebook. First of, <laughs> first of all, because this is where Americans have a bad notion of what Italian food is. So the edges of the pizza were charred, as they should be, cooked in a wood-fired oven, right? The center of the pizza was soft. Again, ditto, as it should be. And it wasn't loaded with toppings. I mean, the ratio of the toppings to the crust is critical in authentic Italian pizza. So it was soggy in the center. It was charred on the edges. It didn't have enough filling on top. This was not Italian pizza. It was a hard sell. And I said, here you are. You're right in the heart of pizza land and you're critical of the pizza that is being made right here because you are used to eating thick pizza topped with chicken, broccoli, mushrooms, and God knows what else.
1: And even here, margarita is like on the menu for I feel like any kind of pizza, which is not really margarita, but they use it on the menus.
2: They use it as a plain pizza a lot of times.
1: Right, right. And it's not even close to what Marianne's describing. Well, if you go on the website for La Vera Pizza
3: Napoletana, you will see the list of rules, which give the stamp of approval of what a pizza margarita is. I mean, you have to use a certain kind of flour, usually caputo. You have to use a certain kind of yeast. The dough has to rise for a certain amount of time. The toppings that I just told you about have to be the toppings. The pizza has to cook in less than 90 seconds. All these rules are something that Neapolitans take very seriously when it comes to pizza and, of course, other foods as well. So restaurants can call whatever they want because they're here. They're not there. And we as consumers, if we haven't been to Italy, if we don't have a reference point from which to go, then we just assume that that's what it is. It's like the guy that wanted to have a pepperoni pizza. I said, fine, you want a pepperoni pizza? Go ahead and order it. When it came, he was just beside himself. He said, this what is this? It has peppers on it. I said, right, that's what you ordered. A pizza with pepperoni. Pepperoni in Italian means peppers.
1: You want- <laughs> I love that you made him do it anyway, yeah. even though you knew. <laughs> yeah. You want
3: sausage? You order salfice. So there's so many of these, you know, misnomers of what Italian food is really all about. And that's been the job of Chow Italia over all these years is to get the story out there about what is real and what isn't.
2: Well, Marianne, tell us a little bit more about Chow Italia. I've watched many of your episodes. In fact, before we go further, I will mention that Marianne has a great episode about the seven fishes. I believe you did one with the mayor of Boston a few years back. I did,
3: Mayor Menino, Menino. yes.
2: Yep, Mayor Menino, and they cooked all the different fish. They actually, went to the store. They bought the bacalao. So you can check that out. It's perfect for today. But tell us about Chawataya because I, I, you know, I've watched a lot of your stuff, and I know that you have the garden yourself. Like, talk us through some mm-hmm. of the stuff that you do because we only see you on the screen. But there's obviously a lot more that goes into it. Yes,
3: yes. Well, I I'm the host and the creator, so I come up with all of the content, what we're going to cook, where we're going to go, what are we going to do on location? Are we going to be in Italy anywhere this year? So that's my job. And then the garden that you see on the show is my home garden. So we do two episodes in a series, and a series consists of 26 shows. We do two episodes from the garden because I want people to understand that Italians have a reverence for land that we do not have because of their connection to growing things from the earth. So the farm to table movement has been in Italy for centuries. You know, we hear these words today, like it's something new, but it's not. I mean, Italians Uh have been doing farm to table forever. Your grandfather probably had his own grapes. He probably had his own little garden. He probably grew tomatoes. That's farm to table. But anyway, I wanted to make sure that people understood what Italians do when it comes to food, why their food is of such high quality, because it is so fresh and the treatment of it should be so simple. That's really the tenet of Italian cooking. People say to me, well, 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 how would you define Mm -hmm. Italian cooking? And I always say, you take quality ingredients and you keep the treatment simple. That's the basic thing. Anyway, my husband, Gaetano, who is a physician, also loves gardening. So I roped him into putting in this garden, which is huge. And it's a lot of work. So we grow a lot of Italian varieties. We get a lot of our seeds from Francky. You can go to their website, growitalian.com on our website, and you can click over there. But Francky is based in Bergamo, which is in Lombardia in the north. And one year when I was taking the cooking group to Italy, I took them to Lombardia and we went to Francky to their plant, actually, to see how they process the seeds and they're all non-GMO and all of this. Anyway, those are the seeds that we use. And my husband starts the seedlings early in the year, in February, and he puts them under grow lights in the basement. And then we pray over them and say the rosary and all of that. And then in the spring, when they're seedlings, we put them in the ground. And so we've grown everything from dorta tomatoes, plum tomatoes, to fennel, to radicchio, to Italian squashes, just things that you, would find on the Italian table. And by using these seeds, we are able to authenticate the taste of what you would have if you were in Italy. Because as I've said so many times, for anyone who's written a book on Italian cooking, and I've written 12 and other people have written many too, you can come very close to the taste, but you will never duplicate it because you're not there. You don't have the same soil. You don't have the same climate conditions. You can approximate the flavors of a dish from Italy, but you will never, never duplicate it. So we come as close as we can by using these fresh vegetables that we harvest from the garden. And then once... And I go out to the garden when we're doing the episodes and I tell you a little bit about what's there. One year I did fava beans and I told you the story about how the ancient Romans used to think that the souls of the dead were included in the flower bud of the fava bean and how they used fava beans for voting and so on and so on. And then I would harvest fava beans and then I would go into the kitchen and I would make a classic dish, maybe from Sicily, like macu, which is like a mash of fava beans that you would serve with greens so the garden has been a very vital part of the series and um, it takes a lot of effort to do it and then when you're in the studio you've got about 25 people who are there to you know that's the. The technical end of it you've got the cameras and you've got the director and so on and so on and then you've got the kitchen staff and the people that i have working for me in the kitchen are they've been with me for 28 years so i mean and it's like a family you know we all know what to do because we've done it so long so now it's like clockwork it just goes off very easily and we do 20 shows in 10 days two shows in a day. That's like eight recipes per day. That's a lot of work.
2: That sounds like a lot of work. So let me ask you this. You've been doing it for 20 years now. Do you still feel the same way about it? Are you still as excited about it? Has anything changed for you? How how do you feel? doing. I mean, you're still going and you look great on the show. I mean, uh, it's a long time.
3: You know, as many times as I've gone to Italy, maybe 50, 60 now, it's as if I go for the first time every time I go. And I love what I do. I love teaching people about the history of Italian food. I love exposing them to the culture of Italy. Right. Um, it's not old for me. No, it's, it's not. It's, it's very new. And I'm learning all the time when I'm in Italy. I'm learning constantly about new places to go, people to meet. This year we went to a blood orange estate in uh, in sicily where they make the blood orange marmalade and that was fascinating and i learned that it was part of the ferragamo family estate and it was just it was just a, remarkable it's never old but you have to reinvent yourself so this year what we did is my producer said let's get out of the studio let's get out of the studio and let's film okay. a new season." you're in your kitchen. I went, oh my god, because <laughs> you know, I knew what that would take. You know, I like everything in its place, and so now all of a sudden they were gelling my windows and putting up these lights and doing this and that, and. We did it. We filmed it in my kitchen. We also included a drone this year that flew over the, uh, the garden area so you could get a wide view of the garden. And I feel like we stayed really relevant with technology because we introduced the drone. But then we went to Italy, my producer and I, and we did what we call video postcards. Because we have to remember that there are always going to be people who are never going to get to Italy. But they can go vicariously through our show. I think that's why this show has merit, because people who are never going to get there, and there are many people who watch our show that are they are Italian-Americans, obviously, not to say that you know we don't have non-Italian-Americans. We do. We have a mix of people, but the big majority of them who say to me, oh, I'm so glad that you showed me the Trevi Fountain in Rome. I would never have been able to go there, but it was beautiful to see on TV. So this year, we, we did a more video postcards, and we were in Rome again, and then we went to down the Amalfi and into Capri. So on the season this year, which is coming in the spring of 2018, you will see these video postcards that are tacked on to the end of the show.
1: Do you have a favorite region in terms of the cooking style and such, the taste?
3: Well, it's hard to say. I love them all, but of course I'm a Southern Italian. So I love I think Sicilian food is beyond awesome because of the number of civilizations that have impacted that island with their imprint. So you had Phoenicians, you had Greeks, you had Romans, you had Arabs, you had Normans, you had Spanish. All of these influence the cooking of Sicily. So you can't really say, this is what Sicilian cooking is. No, Sicilian cooking is a minestrone soup of cultures. And that's what makes it so fascinating. And when you go there, you, you taste things that are so different. You, you know, they're part African, they're part Spanish,
1: they're part Roman. I mean, they're, it's a mix. Well, since so many of our, you know, Italian-Americans come from the South, from Sicily, and of course, you know, from the regions of Campania, and so many of us are from near Naples, can you also speak a little bit about, I know you can't, there's no silver bullet, but just if you could speak a little bit about that region, about, let's just maybe even say, you know, Napoledon cooking. Yeah,
3: sure. Neapolitan cooking, of course, was made famous by two things pasta and tomatoes. And not just any tomato, but San Marzano tomatoes. I think there's a great bit of confusion about what these tomatoes really are. And so on the show this year, I did a show where I featured the DOPs, DOP San Marzano tomatoes. And I told people why they're called DOPs and how they're processed and that whole story. But people think every plum tomato is a San Marzano, but that's not true. If it doesn't come from San Marzano, it's not a San Marzano tomato, period. And it will tell you this on the can of tomatoes that you're buying because you'll see that DOP and you'll also see the European Union yellow tag. But Neapolitan cooking is based on a lot of vegetables, a lot of fish. For instance, eggplant, both in in Naples and in Sicily, are huge eggplant dishes. Many, many kinds of eggplant dishes from Involtini to the Parmigiana to the Pasta alla Norma that you find in Sicily. So the tomato and, of course, Pasta and pasta, we all consider to be in general Italy's national dish. I mean, what would life be without a dish of pasta (laughs) to define (laughs) Italian cooking? But the Neapolitans have really mastered how to dry pasta, how to make pasta, first of all, and they mastered how to dry pasta and they have created all kinds of artisanal pastas. So I think the vegetable dishes and the pasta dishes and with the concentration on eggplant and then the seafood dishes with squid and the bacala and different fish dishes, those are all critical to Neapolitan cooking. And then in Sicilian cooking, you have, of course, again, because it's an island, you've got fish and the two big winners there are swordfish and tuna. Those are the two. And if you walk through, if you want to know what Sicilian food is all about, Go there and walk through the market, walk through the capo, walk through the balado. Those are the two major markets in Sicily right now. Unfortunately, the Vuceria, which was a fantastic market just outside of Palermo there, in Palermo rather, is no longer. I just took the group through the uh, the capo. And once you get to the market, you feel it's almost like a casbah. You get in there and, and they're all singing out loud about their different foods that they're trying to sell in their Sicilian dialect. And you see the big, huge swordfishes and the tuna sitting out there proudly on tables of all fish. I mean, there's fish that I can't even begin to describe. Just a volume of fish of every description that you can imagine. And then, of course, the vegetables. There isn't anything I don't think that doesn't grow in Sicily. And this was brought home to me as we were traveling around I'm looking out the window, and I'm looking at these not only the vineyards, but mm-hmm. prickly pear farms as far as you can see, just miles and miles the, the of Fico prickly Dindia. pear. The Ficodindia, exactly, Fikidina. and then a Fikidina. and then of course you've got the citrus. Sicily is big on citrus, especially the blood orange, as I mentioned earlier. And then you have the citron, which is also very big. I mean, there isn't anything that doesn't grow there. It's just yeah, amazing. It's,
2: it's an amazing place. And now that I'm starving, after hearing <laughs> all that, let me ask you this, because it, I think it's becoming more and more obvious as we have this conversation. And I think it's something that Dolores and I have seen in doing this podcast for a while now is that When it comes to food, it's not just about the food and the recipes. It's really about so much more. The traditions that go with it, the family traditions that go with it. Um, Like you said, the Mm -hmm. regions of Italy, you can define a region just by looking at a dish. I mean, Uh food tells us so much about Italian families and heritage and where people came from. I guess the question for you is if we we have listeners out there, obviously they're not cooks like you per se, but they're certainly Italian Americans, and I'm sure that they know their way around the kitchen. But how can they try to connect with their heritage through food and through recipes? Like what do you recommend that they do to try to do that? like to try to like really get a hold of their family recipes and where they came from?
3: Well, I think they can start by talking to their nearest relatives. I mean, this is one of the things I regret a lot, having lived with a Neapolitan grandmother until I was about 21, and then my Sicilian grandmother when I was a young adult. I never really asked them the questions. That was the time to say, Grandma, you know, what was it like for you in Sicily? What was it like for you in Naples? But you know who did do this was my mother. She did. She kept her her old notebooks with a lot of their recipes. In fact, in my latest book, I talk about this. I call it my mother's recipe box. And I talk about the fact that when my mother was getting older and I had remembered that I had never asked my grandmothers anything, I really honed in on her and started asking her questions. I remember calling her one day when I was writing my first cookbook. This was when I was writing Chow Italia in 1990. And I said, mom, I need Rita Ritchie's Christmas cookie, the one that she would bring over when she would come to visit Grandma Galasso. Do you have it? She says, yeah, I have it. I'll send it to you. Okay. She sends it to me and it's on this little note card and it's at the top. It says, this makes one bushel. <laughs> I thought, what? One bushel? <laughs> you know? But I started collecting these recipes and you know what makes me feel good is that I've kept these people alive in my cookbooks. Miss Rita Ritchie, people write to me and they want Rita Ritchie's cookie. You know, Rita Ritchie lives. Mrs. Tagani's pepper cookies. They want her pepper cookies. It's just amazing. And I get a chuckle out of it because I think these women, they haven't really died. I mean they're here. They're here with me. And so I would say start by asking the questions to whoever is your closest and dearest relative that has either come from Italy or can tell you stories about, you know, what happened to their parents or grandparents in Italy. Why do you think things like Ancestry.com are so popular now? Because people want to know this stuff. They want to know about their ancestors. Then I would say, once you've contacted your relatives. Read something about the region that you're from. If your family is from Campania, get a book about Campania. I remember one of the very first books I read, which is in my library, is Waverly Roots, The Foods of Italy. I was glued to this book. This was before I started my TV show. I read Waverly Roots, The Foods of Italy, which is an old, old tome. And in it, he goes through every region of Italy. And he tells you a little bit about the history and the culture and what the critical foods of those regions are. So these are always, plus, if you don't want to do any of that, you can always go to ciaoitalia.com.
1: There you go. Uh, yeah. Learn
3: uh, from our well, website or read any of
1: my books. Exactly.
2: Well listen listen, this is uh you've given us quite a bit of time, which we appreciate. And you are through Chow Italia, you are really Connecting people using the food and the recipes, like you said, to connect people with Italy, to connect people to their heritage. And it is something I think that sometimes we take for granted when we work in this space is that a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to Italy and they don't have the opportunity to see some of these things firsthand. So, if through these platforms we can help them get more connected with that, um, I think it's a really, really invaluable thing to do. So, again, we have Marianne Esposito here from Chow Italia. And, Marianne, listen, we want to thank you for spending some time with us, and we want to wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas, of course.
3: Well, thank you, and the same to you, and you're doing a great thing, too, so I think that's wonderful, so Bon Natale to you both.
2: Now it's time for the Italian-American Stories segment of the episode. This is the segment where we try to bring you back to your family memories or traditions. We try to jolt your memories so that you remember past traditions and then talk about them with future generations to pass them on. Before we get into this special story segment, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this segment today, the Holidays app for iOS, which was developed by my two brothers who you heard on a previous episode. Do you ever struggle to remember where you celebrated a holiday last year? Do you continually argue with family members over Sunday dinner about whose turn it is to host this holiday or that holiday? Well, good news. The holidays app for iOS is now available for download. When you log in the first time, you'll be prompted to select the holidays that you celebrate, and the app will simply notify you on that particular day to start your holiday and record that special moment. What's cool about this is when I woke up on Thanksgiving morning, the app wished me a happy Thanksgiving and prompted me to start recording the day. I was able to log where I was and who was with me. I added all the photos from the day and then had the option to share it right to Facebook. It's going to make my life a lot easier next November when we start the planning all over again. Forget about the waste of time looking for photos or old Facebook posts from a year ago. Use this personalized holiday journal, which will always be right at your fingertips. You can celebrate any other custom moment, whether a family wedding, birthday party, or special annual family reunion. Always know where you were and who you were with using the Holidays app on iOS for iPhone. That's Holidays, H-O-L-I-D-A-Z-E, and you can find it at HolidaysAppIOS.com. All right, so this is a special story segment we recently did an Arthur Avenue food tour. We hosted it with Arthur Avenue Food Tours, and Danielle O'Terry is a wonderful tour guide on Arthur Avenue. She has family history on Arthur Avenue because her great grandfather had a bacalao store there, which eventually turned into a meat market. And so, what we did was we hosted a tour with her. It was wonderful. It was a few weeks ago, and you know it was a couple of hours, and it was a food tour. But I just didn't expect that much history and that much food tasting to be in the tour. So it was just really delightful. I had a great time. Um, I also want to thank Ray Guarini of Italian Enclaves, who you've heard on the podcast. He came along with me since Dolores wasn't able to make it there. And we had a great time. We had a really great time. And I have to say, You have to bring your family to Arthur Avenue in the Bronx if you haven't been there. Or if it's been a while and your kids haven't been there, you've got to go back. It's just amazing how it's all of these stores next to each other. And if you're not familiar with it, it really is an Italian enclave. It's store after store, after market, after restaurant. Many of the restaurants or the markets have been owned for many, many years by the same families. Most of them own the buildings and they're able to keep the prices of the food really affordable. And this is real, real, good Italian food. It's unbelievable. And what I'm going to share with you in this story segment is just a couple of short clips from the tour, a couple of the audio clips. You really should go on the tour because you're going to see so much. We go in the stores, we go in the back of the stores, we see the making stuff, we hear about the histories and the traditions and how Arthur Avenue was named Arthur Avenue and all this other stuff. But there's three specific clips that I'm going to share with you. And these are not studio recorded. We're on the corner in the Bronx on Arthur Avenue. So you see all, you hear all the horns in the background and all the other noises but the three clips specifically that I want to share with you one of them was they're all Danielle O'Terry speaking along the tour one of them was outside of a store called the title brothers and she talks a little bit about what they sell but the interesting thing about it was that they're jewish And they started the store on Arthur Avenue. They put up a star in the window proclaiming that they were Jewish and they were very well received and they've been there ever since. And I thought that was a really nice story. And she elaborates on it a bit in the clip you're about to hear. She also talks a little bit about her grandfather's store, which is now Vincent's Meat Market. She elaborates on that a bit. And then lastly, you're going to hear a really interesting clip about a cheese shop It's called Calandra's Cheese Shop. And a very interesting story about how the owner sold it to someone and what he's doing now. We also visited many other parts of Arthur Avenue. Um, We visited Casenza's Fish Market, where John Casenza gave us a really nice overview of the seven fishes and the whole tradition. We also went to the Arthur Avenue kind of retail market there. I visited with David Greco, who was on a past podcast. And David, thank you. If you're listening, I ordered uh, a small breakfast and he gave us a very large breakfast and we enjoyed it. And we had a couple of members of our new neighborhood there as well so it was really really enjoyable and here are the clips enjoy them
0: and the thing to get here see the olive oils that are stacked up over there these are different brands. Those are their brands. So they've got these labels that look like all old-timey. It's Artifice. It's their stuff. (laughs) They have a farm that they work with in custody. and another in Sicily. So <laughs> Danielle, anyway,
2: this, uh... this is the store that your family, the storefront that they own. Okay. Yeah, just... so you said family started as a, a bakala store. Bakala store. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And then they, after World War II, they
0: turned it into a butcher shop because now people had money for meat, which they did wow. not have before. So you can see everything's happening right back there. This oh yeah, wow. Definitely worth butcher in the whole area. Uh, I mean, this is one of the best butcher out shops out. in
2: the country.
0: Peter owns the place now. Hand selects everything. Everything that's what here
2: doing? is oh, okay. doing the meat? Oh, yeah. broken <laughs> down.
0: Yeah, but this is like—it looks like meat glory. It's tough. and the amount of work it takes to open a place like this in the morning, and then to clen- yeah. you, know, you have to sanitize yeah. everything at the end of the night. Tremendous work, and these guys
2: make it look like easy. This is Vincent's grazing. Meat Market. Is that what
0: it's called? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah,
2: I was, just start selling it. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. This
0: star is now- just the ricotta store since the 1930s that was their specialty uh, and this is a case where the owner the, uh, the, the Calandra family there was nobody in the family to pass it on to so they wound up selling it to Diego who changed his last name to Calandra <laughs> and he's from Colombia but he speaks Neapolitan and Italian oh, and he's wow. the nicest man in the world and he bought the shop from them because he was actually the guy making the ricotta How long those, anyway uh, oh he's so, been here for a long time he's been here for like 20 oh wow years. yeah uh and so everybody behind the counter is Dominican, Mexican, whatever. So these guys know Italian cheeses extremely well. And this store has all these important Italian cheeses that are like half the price of what Marie's
2: cheese I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We want to wish you a very Merry Christmas to you and your families. We had another fun year doing the podcast. And we love hearing from all of you. You've given us a lot of inspiration to keep everything going. And we really appreciate it. And we just wish you all the best. And now I'll let Dolores take us out.
1: Okay, Amici, just a reminder that you can connect with us via email by visiting ItalianAmericanExperience.com and clicking on the Join Us tab. And you can also find us on social media. We're on Instagram at ItalianAmerican. We're on Twitter at Ital American. And we are on Facebook at ItalianAmericanPodcast. Buon Natale!